Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 14, please. The 14th chapter of Joshua. And I'm uh, losing my voice, so if I lose it, as always, I think I've said this before, John will read the rest of my notes and make this happen, right? Joshua 14. We're going to read uh, verses 6 through 14, and then we're going to pray and then dive in. So read with me from God's Word, Joshua chapter 14, starting in verse 6. Read along, or follow along as I read. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the son of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, The land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in that day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh, for an an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the Kenizzite to this day because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Let's pray. God, we ask you to move in our hearts this morning, Lord. We we do come before you not as uh, perfect people who have it all together, but we come before you as broken individuals, um, and what unites us as a community is, is the fact that we are taking our brokenness and just simply placing it on Christ. We see Christ as the only thing that matters here. Uh, he is the center of, of our, our uh, worship. He's the center of our hearts. And God, as we are in Joshua today, he's the center of our reading. Uh, I pray that what, what we see here is how uh, Christ fulfills what, it, what, or what the Israelites were looking for, what Caleb was looking for, uh, and how Christ fulfills every bit of our longings today. Lord, open our eyes to your word. We believe that this is your word. Speak to us, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to draw your attention to uh, the eighth verse that we just read of chapter 14. The eighth verse where Caleb is speaking, and Caleb says this, right before verse 9, he says, I wholly followed the Lord my God. I wholly followed the Lord my God. 
As a pastor in Baltimore, I spend a lot of time in the um, sort of nonprofit world, speaking with uh, various nonprofit leaders and partnering with nonprofits, um, working with community activists, part of various coalitions and groups. And uh, uh, one thing, or the, the sort of the reoccurring conversation is always this what are the problems with the city? And what are the solutions? What are the problems with the city and what are the solutions? And uh, as I've been in countless meetings and uh, among people who are much smarter than I, um, you know what we, or you know what I hear? Um, we don't know what the problems actually are and we don't know what the solutions actually are. <laughs> it's like really complex. I had a, a, a friend of mine who is a, uh, he runs a nonprofit in the city a great organization, sat down with some of the smartest minds, the smartest community activists, and they, they, everybody was going around sort of explaining what they thought some of the core underlying issues were in our culture and in our city, what, what uh, sort of keeps this, this cycle of poverty, um, the joblessness that we're facing. The city recently we discovered is going bankrupt. All right, everybody. Um, yes, and um, so, so we, they went around the table, and I mean, the experts were there, and he said the smarter the people were, the more expert they were, the less they had a clue as to what the solutions were. They knew everything that did not work, but they weren't exactly sure what it is that actually could work, all right? Now, what I believe we're seeing here, when we, when we think about sort of the broader problems of humanity, all right, I use our city as an example, but the broader problems of, our, of, of humanity, I mean, I don't care what neighborhood you live in or what, what background you come from, the broader problems of humanity, what we see here, I believe, is the solution, all right? And also what I see is the problem. Caleb right here is simply saying this, I wholly followed God. The problem with humanity is simply this. We do not wholly follow God. All right? The solution to our problem is to do what? To wholly follow God. All right? So I told this to my nonprofit friend. You know what the problem is? That people don't follow God. The solution is what? The pe for people to follow God. Now, you might say, Joel, you are being extremely simplistic. You're being overly religious. We can't just answer the problems in culture, the problems in humanity, by simply saying that we have failed to follow God. And then I might come back and say, well, give me your problems. What are, what are the problems? What are the underlying? I mean, okay, we, we see the sort of the, the, the uh, surface-level problems, but what are the underlying, the undercurrent Issues that continue these things. And what we'll do is point every single one of those reasons back to this right here, that we have failed to follow God. Let me give you a quick, brief example. God gave us the Ten Commandments. Does everybody know the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not steal, murder, covet, cheat, commit adultery, name it, right? God gave us the Ten Commandments. What are the underlying issues? 
we place ourselves as our own gods, as our own idols, and we say, no, I think I will covet. I think I will take what's not mine. I think I will murder. Why are our streets not safe to walk home at night? It's because we don't follow the Ten Commandments, correct? Are you guys tracking with me here? Another example. All right. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most basic teaching. The Sermon on the Mount. Follow it. What does Jesus show us there? Well, murder isn't just simply what you do with your hands. It's actually the hate that you hold in your heart. And so what we see as we look around culture is that people don't just simply murder each other and take lives, which that happens a couple hundred times this year. But the broader effects of the hate that we hold in our hearts, how that moves us toward things that we abhor. Jesus said, You've heard it said, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say, but I say, love, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Do you see how the problem in humanity, do you see how our problem in the city, I mean, as much, and I'm all for nonprofits, I'm all for trying to figure out what the band-aids are, but let's remember that they are band-aids. Because the underlying issue, the root cause, is that we have rebelled against the law of God. We've turned our backs on following after God. And the only answer for humanity is to change that and to start following after God. All right, let me get real. Can I get real? Can I, can I say a couple thoughts? Sitting in some meetings... Um, some folks have, uh, some community leaders talking about sort of the under-resourced neighborhoods in our city where there's, a, you know, poverty exists. The answers that I've heard uh, go along the lines of this. Let's move in people who have jobs. Let's rehab all the houses, make them all pretty. All right, let's clean up the streets and let's put a Starbucks on the corner. All right? <laughs> And then we've solved the problem. Now, friends, listen. There are neighborhoods in this city where everybody's working a good job. There's a Starbucks on the corner. The streets are clean. The houses are beautiful. There's wealth flowing through the city. And those neighborhoods do not reflect the kingdom values of God either. Do you see what I'm saying? And so I'm kind of going on a limb here, but I want you guys to, I want you to see this for a second. The worst thing that could happen to under-resourced neighborhoods is to simply make them like our over-resourced neighborhoods, where greed exists, where self-centeredness still exists, where idolatry still exists. You see, with all of our work and all of the things that we can come up with and these ideas to solve problems, there's this underlying current that keeps us from fully reflecting the values of the kingdom of God, and we will never achieve it on our own. Are we on the same page here? What we see here in, in uh, this, this story of Caleb and this broader story of Joshua, what we see here 
is a picture, a glimpse of the answer to that. So what I want to do today is I want to I want to uh, cover a number of chapters. We're going to cover eight chapters broadly in Joshua. I want to zoom in on this one line and try to explain to you how if we can, as a community and as believers, as people who have been filled with the Spirit of God, if we can somehow understand what it means to remain faithful to God, that we can be catalysts for broader change, the kind of real change that's needed in our city and in our world. All right, we're there? Let, let me give you a quick overview of the chapters. We're covering eight chapters today. Um, if this is your first Sunday with us, we're, co- we're going through the story of Joshua, this, this story of the Israelites coming into the promised land, and um, uh, the, the, the first 12 chapters is a, uh, an overview of the conquest, conquest. The second 12 chapters are an overview of the settlement of the land. Now, we are seven years at this point in the story. We are seven years into the land. It's been seven years since they crossed that Jordan River now. Okay, are we tracking? It's been seven years since those spies went in and met that prostitute Rahab, and she then, as Jericho was conquered, became part of the family. It's been seven years. We're seven years into it. So like a, if, as if you were watching like an epic movie, and they detail sort of the first couple battles in the movie, and then they sort of fast forward through the next seven years of war and conquest. That's where we're at. All right? Uh, chapter 10, if you want to look in your Bibles and try to follow along as I give you an overview, chapter 10, we looked at last week, we discussed this in the dark, actually. Um, and uh, uh, it, we, we saw the, the conquest of the southern portion of the Canaan land. In chapter 11, we see King Hazor, who was who sort of the, uh, the kingpin, the godfather, the, the pimp daddy, whatever you want to call him, over the, the entire northern kingdom, all right? He, he gathers together all of the northern troops, they attack, and then we see this process, uh, this conquest of the northern kingdom played out in chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, we see this line which says, and the land had rest from war. Then chapter 12 is an overview of the kings that Moses beat, chapter, uh, and then also an overview of the kings that Joshua defeated. What we see here is this. Israel now is in the land, okay? God's promises have been fulfilled. We've seen the mighty hand of God as, he, as God himself fights for his people, and what this does for us as believers on this side of the cross is this should cause us to not take up arms against this God who does not change, but rather to fall in reverence, in shaking at his feet in holy, just worship and fear of, and wonder of this God. All right? We, the writer of Joshua sort of writes this conveniently in halves. So right here at the end of chapter 12, it's almost as if part one is over and we're into part two. The conquest is over. And now we are going into the settlement of the land, the division of the land. Who got what, now that they're in the land? Before we do that, look at verse 6 in chapter 13. A very important line. God explains that, that there are still enemies while you're in the land, while you're here. There are still enemies that you, that you must defeat. And what God says about those enemies, he says, I myself 
will drive them out before the people of Israel. Meaning, the land is yours. There's still these pockets left of the Philistines over here and some other. God is saying, I've got it. I'm going to drive them out myself. The land is yours. Just take what is yours. All right, green light. Go get it. 13 continues. It shows you the inheritance of those uh, outside of the Canaan land on the other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, who received that land. Chapter 14, we get into now the division of the land of the, the Canaanites, which is now becoming Israel, right? And so we see in 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 19, it is the division of the land. This head gets this, this leader gets this, this person gets this, the division of the land, and they are filling the land of Israel, the Canaan land. Everybody tracking with me here? All right. What I want to zoom in on now, now that you've got the broad overview, what I want to zoom in on is the first person to receive an allotment of land, all right? So we're in the land, we're there. Joshua now is dividing the land up, and the very first person to receive an allotment of land should make us go, ah, wow. The first person to receive a piece of ground is a foreigner. Someone who is not a among the bloodline of Abraham. Look at it. In chapter 14, verse 6, it says, the people of Judah came to Joshua and Caleb the Kenizzite. Now, if we were to track back to Genesis chapter 15, what you would find is that the, the, the Kenizzites, uh, when, when God promised the land to Abraham, the Kenizzites were people that were in the land. The, they were like the ungodly ones that God is going to drive out of the land. Four generations. This is Caleb's great-grandfather, or great-great-grandfather. Somewhere along the line, the Kenizzites were swept up into the grace of God. And now a Kenizzite is the first person to inherit the land that they once dwelled in. Guys, do you see what God is doing here? I mean, from in Joshua, where people typically go to prove that God is like a God of genocide and a God of... No, God is a God who from the very beginning is showing us that he's making way for the foreigners to come in, for those on the outside to come on the inside and be partakers in the grace of God, in the family of God. And so the first allotment goes to someone who God was initially going to drive out, yet God brought him in, and now he's given a piece of land. Everybody say amen to that. I think that's cool, because that's every one of us, right? You Gentile, you. Now, what I, what I want to point out, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, <clears throat> is the why. The why. I wonder what I do with my coffee. Um, the why. Look at verse 6. So why, why did God give the first bit of land to this foreigner, the Kenizzite, all right? Look at verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua, and Caleb, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea? So this is referring back to their former leader, Moses, 
40 years before, all right, 45 years before, actually. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me. So he was, he's, he's, he's remembering back, all right, I was a strapping young 40-year-old at the time. Now he's 85. You can see that in a few verses in verse 10. He's 85. So it's been 45 years, all right? You guys tracking with the timeline here? 38 years of cursed wandering in the wilderness, seven years of conquering the land. He's now 85, remembering back to when he was 40, coming to Joshua. He says, I was 40 then when I was sent in to spy out the land. And I brought back a word again as it, as, as it was in my heart, but my brothers who went, went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Now, what's he referring to, and why would, why would he say, Joshua, you know what I'm talking about? Well, it's because Joshua was with him. Joshua's not a stranger to Caleb. These are actually two old friends who 45 years prior to this moment, there were 12 spies sent in to observe the land. God gave the green light to Israel and said, the land is yours, take it. Twelve spies were sent into the land. Twelve spies came back. Ten spies freaked out and said, it is impossible. I know God is saying this, but what we're seeing is something entirely different. We cannot trust the word of God. We cannot enter into the land. It doesn't make sense. It goes against everything that we can think of. We cannot do it. They struck fear among the people. There were two spies that came back and said, no, I think we need to trust the word of God. You know who those two, those two spies were? Joshua and Caleb. These two young men who said, no, we've got to trust the word of the Lord. We've got to be faithful to the word of the Lord. We've got to follow after where God is leading us. Yet the other ten struck fear in the entire people of Israel, and the entire nation doubted the word of God and said, no, I don't think so. When that happened in Numbers chapter 13, Caleb tries to quiet the people. No, no, listen, he says, God has given us the land. To no avail, the people freak out and say, no, we're not going to do it. At that moment, Caleb and Joshua, I'll read it to you in Numbers. It says, Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. They began to weep, lament the state of their brothers and sisters' faith or lack thereof. They would not trust the Lord that day. 45 years before. And God said, here in Numbers, not one of this generation shall come into the promised land. You had your opportunity, and now not one of you will enter except two names, Caleb and Joshua. So here they're in the land. The conquest is over. And his old friend, Joshua's old friend Caleb, comes to him and says, remember that day. Remember that day. And what we see Caleb say is as the heart of the people melted, we tore our clothes, we wept, we wept. He says this, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. I wholly 
followed the Lord my God. Out of these eight chapters, there's two words that I want you to remember. Holy followed. Can we remember that? Everybody say it. Holy followed. Let's break it down. I want to get into these two words, all right? Caleb uses these, or these, these words, I can't speak, are used of Caleb three times right here. Once, right here in verse 8, Caleb referring to himself says, I wholly followed God. Again, in verse 9, they're used, Moses uses the words referring to Caleb way back in the day. Moses said, you wholly followed the Lord, so he'll give you the land. And then later, the author of Joshua himself uses the words again of Caleb, saying, because he wholly followed the Lord. He's receiving, this foreigner is receiving the promised land because he wholly followed. The word holy, it literally means holy. Like entirely, completely. Nothing, nothing held back, 100%, it's all you've got. He entirely followed the Lord. That word followed right there, throughout most of Joshua, that word in the, in the Hebrew, it's mostly translated after, like something came after. So what this is saying is that Caleb entirely, completely, 100% came after God. So wherever God went, right behind him was who? Caleb. So if God went this way, Caleb is right there. If God went this way, Caleb is right there. You guys, guys get the picture? Like 100%, no wavering, no turning, no looking any other direction, just right there after God, right behind him. Caleb 100% entirely followed after God. Let me show you what God said of Caleb. God himself, in Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, said these words of Caleb. He said, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit. Everybody say different spirit. And has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. God's promise to Caleb 45 years before, because he wholly followed God. He entirely came after God. Why? What was different about him? Well, it says that he had a different spirit. There was a different spirit. You see, the spirit that everyone else had was a spirit of fear, a spirit that led them to rebel, a spirit that led them to put God on trial and say, what we have seen is different than what you're telling us. A spirit that caused them to be cursed and to wander the wilderness for 38 years. But Caleb had a different spirit. He had a spirit that led him to wholly follow after God. Now I want to point out a few different uh, things that are communi communicated with these words, holy followed. All right, Number one, <clears throat> if you're taking notes you could write these down. If, number one, Caleb wholly followed God among a people of doubters. He wholly followed God among a generation of doubters. Think about this with me. 45 years prior, there's Caleb along with Joshua, one of only two people in the entire nation who say, I think we should follow and trust 
the word of God on this one. The people must have believed that Caleb lost his mind. They must have believed he was a fool. You have not seen what we have seen. You're not using your head. You see what we're up against. You see the odds that we're up against. Yet you are, as a fool, just trying to trust the word of God. Caleb had faith in the word of God, followed God completely when, listen, nobody else shared his enthusiasm. And today, if you are a Christian, you are called, listen, to wholly follow God, even if nobody else does. Even if you are the only one, you are called to wholly follow after God. Now here's the problem with Christians, and this is all of us. The problem with us is this. It's easy to do that when we have comrades. It's easy to wholly follow after God and to be faithful to God when everybody else is doing it as well. When everybody else is wholly or following wholly after God. It's easy to say, yes, I'm going to trust the word of God when our brothers and sisters all around us are saying, yes, I'm going to trust the word of God. And we're in our little accountability groups and encouraging each other on. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to keep pushing. But what if no one else did? What if everybody began to lose their faith? What if everybody began to doubt the word of God? We would begin to wonder if there's something wrong with us. Maybe I'm not seeing something here. Maybe I'm reading this wrong. And we begin to second guess the word of God when the world begins to call us fools. Some of you may be struggling with severe temptations. Let me give you an example. Some of you may be struggling with a same-sex attraction. And the world calls you a fool to wholly follow after God. The world calls you a fool to live a life of sacrifice and faithful obedience. Friends, your sacrifice is worth it. In a world that calls you a fool. Some of you on your job may be facing an unethical dilemma. And your coworkers are co calling you a fool to second guess what you should do in that situation. Just do it. It's not going to hurt anybody. Who's it going to hurt? Just make the decision. Just do it. Yet, if you are a Christian here, you are called to wholly follow after God to be completely faithful to God regardless of what others around you say. This is what we're seeing here with Caleb. I cannot imagine how difficult it was for him. His own brothers and sisters calling him a fool. Siding with the skeptics, with the doubters, with the rebels. Caleb wholly followed God among a people of doubters. And friends, we are called to do 
the same. Secondly, oh, let me say something here. I just saw this in my notes. This is good. Um, Caleb's response to his brothers and, sis- brothers and sisters who were doubting, you know what his response was? His response wasn't <clears throat> to just simply get angry with them. His response wasn't actually just to simply tear off a relationship and say, forget you guys. When Caleb found himself in the midst of doubters and skeptics, rebels, people turning their backs on the word of God, Caleb was moved to tears. He ripped his clothes and he wept for his brothers and sisters who were straying from the word of God. And so for those of you who are Christians, your natural instinct when you see yourself as a spiritual minority, the only one that actually believes this stuff. And you see others drifting away and we look at our city and we see how our city has turned its back on God. We see humanity has completely just turned its back on following God. Our response is one of a lament. We tear our clothes, we fall on our knees and we weep because it's the only thing that matters. And those that we love are turning away from it. Number two, the second thing that's communicated here, number two, Caleb wholly followed God for 45 years. All right, this is kind of a no-brainer, but I want to point this out. He wholly followed God for 45 years. Look at verse 10. Could somebody get me a little glass of water or coffee or something? Oh, thank you. Look at this. Everybody's jumping. I love it. Oh, I got one. I got one. I got one. We're good. We're good. Thank you. Look at verse 10 with me. And now behold, he says, it says, Caleb says, the Lord has kept me alive. By the way, just a side note, look how he just casts himself into sovereignty of God. He's like, the Lord has kept me alive. Like, he's just, he's being good to me. He's being faithful to me. He's keeping his promises to me. Behold, the Lord has kept me alive for 45 years. Since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. For 45 years, he's been faithful to God. And now he says, behold, I am this day 85 years old. He is an old man. An old fart that's been faithful for 45 years. Guys, like, sometimes I just think we got to get it together. Like, we get 10 days of hardship, and we're starting to question. I don't know. Has God turned his back on me? Does God hate me? Does God not exist? I don't know if I believe this stuff anymore. I've had 10 days of hardship. Look, he has been faithful for 45 years of nothing. 38 of those years. Bearing, reaping the consequences of his doubting brothers and sisters. He was the one that was wholly faithful. But because the others 
were not, he was swept up into their curse, their condemnation, and had to walk the wilderness for 38 years. When, do, when did Caleb ever turn his back on God and say, no, I should be there? This isn't fair that I'm here. When did he ever turn his back on God? For 38 years of wilderness wandering, he was holy, or followed God wholly, entirely. When all he saw was dirt and blood and sweat and tears, he remained faithful. And here he is 45 years later as an old man. Do you think that the young 40-year-old Caleb believed that God's promise would come to him when he's 85? Of course not. He thought it was going to happen now. When he was 40, I mean, he thought it was there. He thought he, was, he had arrived. We're out of Egypt. We're going into the promised land. He never dreamed that he would be 85. But listen, he trusted the Lord. And through year after year after year of nothing but sand in the wilderness, and then seven years of battle, he never strays. And he wholly follows after God. This was no minor setback for him. A Christian is someone who is called to remain faithful to God, even through adversity, even through tragedy. You see, this is the problem with the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, or the gospel which simply says, if you have enough faith, God's going to bless you here and now. And if you're not being blessed here and now, well, then you must not have enough faith. Well, good night. What if, I haven't heard somebody my age say good night ever. <laughs> what if there was a prosperity preacher there in the wilderness on day one and now for 38 years, he's preach, whispering into, into Caleb's ear, the reason you don't have the land is because you don't have enough faith. Friends, that would have been a lie. What Caleb has found is that God has not promised us anything right now. God has not called you, Christian, to health and wealth and prosperity. What God has called you to is this. Listen, he has called you to faithfulness. There may be health and wealth and prosperity. There may be wilderness wandering. Whatever you face, whatever tragedy strikes, God has called you to faithfulness. To follow him completely. That's it. Have I told you guys about the story, I think I have, the story of the sub-Saharan African missionary? Um, I'll just tell it, can I? I, I? I'm repeating this, I believe, but a repeat's never a bad thing. A friend of a friend uh, felt the call by, by God to go to a small village in sub-Saharan Africa, and there he was going to proclaim the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ, the only hope that any human has in this world, all right? He gets there <coughs> and arrives among this tribe. 
and begins to proclaim the gospel. And what he finds is horrible living conditions. Uh, oppressive heat, limited electricity, snakes that come through the doors at night, poisonous snakes that crawl underneath your beds in the dark. And listen, for eight years, he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and never saw one convert. Never saw anything for eight years. Can you imagine? Like, wait, I thought God brought me here to see people come to Christ. And there's nothing. No fruit. For eight years, he comes back home to America, speaks with my friend, and my friend says this to him. He says, God has called you to remain faithful. You are not called to convert people. You are not called to bring about spiritual change. You are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and the hope that we can find in that. And you are called to be faithful to that. You're doing a great job. He went back in faithfulness. Listen, in the 11th year, 11 years, he's seen nothing. In the 11th year, the uh, witch doctor, which was sort of the tribal leader, came before him, laid his tools on the ground, fell on his knees, and he said, your God is the real God. And the entire village that day repented and believed the gospel. In the 11th year. Do you see how God called him to faithfulness? And do you see how God rewards a life of faithfulness? Friends, you are called to be faithful for 11 years, 45 years, an entire lifetime of hardship, of dirt, of sweat, of blood, of tears. You're called to remain faithful to God. The third bit that I, that I see here that I want to communicate is this. Caleb wholly followed God, but we see here in verse 11 that Caleb was not done following God, all right? He's 85 years old, and listen, he's not retiring from this, all right? Look at it in verse 11, or we'll back up. He says, now, I be, now behold, in verse 10, I'm this day 85 years old. Look at verse 11. Check this out. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. This guy is awesome, all right? He's a stud. He's, he's working out every day or something, <laughs> drinking health shakes. I'm still as strong today as I was then for war, for going and coming. Verse 12, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be, look at it, that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out. I shall drive. Now remember, in ch chapter 13, God said that there are still enemies among, he, among you here and you are still called to drive them out and I will give them, I will give you the land. Caleb still is acting with the same kind of faith as he did 45 years before. And he says, look, I'm as strong as I was then. I'm able, I'm capable, and I see this hill country, and I see the enemies there. Let me have it, and I'll drive them out because I'm trusting the word of God. 
Look, for Caleb, there was no such thing as retirement from the work of God. Caleb may have retired from his job, whatever that was. He may have said goodbye to his children and had an empty nest. But as far as this bit of radical, crazy, submissive obedience to God, it was like not an option for him that he would ever just retire from that and be done. What we see, though, is this. I want to point this out. In verse seven, or chapter 17, we see Israel right now in this moment choose otherwise. In chapter 17, we see the Canaanites, the people that God said, drive out, you can have the land. Instead, Israel says, no. No, we actually just want to live with them. We want them to serve us. We want to make life easy for us right now. We've had seven years of hardship. We just want to take it easy. And they did. And they allowed the enemy to stay in the land. You see, so here's Israel. They're they're in the land. And now what they're saying is we want one foot here in the promises of God and in the land that God's given us. And we we want the other foot with the enemies of God. We sort of want both. And what was driving them was their desire to take it easy. Their desire to have servants, to have wealth. But not so for Caleb. Caleb was like completely, wholly devoted to God, entirely following God. Not a bit of his foot would slip into the hands of the enemy. And so Caleb here takes up arms against those that are living in this hill country, and he spends the rest of his life as a warrior, continuing to do battle against the enemies of God. He never rested. He never sat back and said, I'm good. I've arrived. Good enough. He was faithful to God until the end. Now, uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me say this. I was listening to, the, to a secular radio station. A secular, everybody remember that? Not a Christian station. Was it 95? What is it? 95. What's the Christian station? Does anybody listen to it? 95 one? I'll have to listen to that sometime. Um, just <laughs> I was listening to this uh, uh, a secular radio station. And they were talking about Baltimore, and they were talking about the problem of um, uh, unwed mothers and fathers that are not around, absentee fathers. Big problem in our city. And so they're going around, sort of a panel on this show, talking about what the issue is, what drives it. One person on this show, remember, it's a secular radio station. He said this. He said, the problem is the churches. All right, And then at first I was like, oh, what's he going to say? Come on. It's always the churches. But then listen to what he said. He said, the problem is the churches. He said, the problem is that you can have a young girl in a church who decides to move in and live with her boyfriend without the commitment of marriage, and she can still sing on stage that Sunday. I was like, wow. That's truth. I mean, a secular radio station, they're saying this. They're saying the problem in Baltimore is that we do not actually wholly follow God. 
Do you see what he's saying? The problem is this. We want to have this religious thing here, but we also want to pursue our desires. We want to have the desires of our flesh. We want to have whatever feels right and feels good to us. And the church allows that. Sure, go ahead. As long as you're here, as long as you're wearing the right clothes, come on, sing on Sunday, and then have your desires throughout the week. Caleb wholly followed after God. He said, I will not have both the promised land and the enemies of God and try to enjoy them both. I will wholly follow after him and I will spend the rest of my life as a warrior and a foreigner in the land that I'm in. There was no such thing as retirement for Caleb and there shouldn't be for us either. <clears throat> From Christian work, that is. Amen. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> attention back up here, please. It takes uh, just a brief glance at the news to see that, that, um, that humanity has turned her back on God I mean, it really just takes a brief glance to say, yeah, the problem is that we do not wholly follow after God. Yet, humanity wants to sit back and say, no, that's not the problem. Let's figure out, figure out what the problem is. And spend hours and hours and hours trying to determine what the actual problems of society are and come up with band-aid after band-aid after band-aid for those problems. And guys, I don't fault society for that because that's all they can do without the gospel. But I want you to see this, and this is kind of the crazy thing. There, I, I was sitting down with a friend of mine who is uh, someone who is all about sort of so societal change. And I was talking about sort of the sovereignty of God and, and God is in control and, and, and everything is for the glory of God. And he looked at me and, and in all honesty, he was like, people actually believe that? Are, are you serious? Are you actually saying that? Like, I mean, he, he wasn't trying to be mean. He was just like honestly like kind of surprised. Well, well, you're kidding me. People actually believe that. Guys, to the world, we look like fools. It doesn't make sense. We're called literalists. We're called, we're, I don't, fundamentalists. Please don't call me a fundamentalist. But they'll throw that on you because we take things seriously. You see, this is, this is a great irony here, okay? This is the great irony. What looks foolish to the world is the only solution for the world. It is the only solution. I'm not talking about one solution among many. I'm talking about the only real solution for the problem of humanity. Let me give you an example. The past, over the past 30 years, humanity has believed that 
the, the societal problems uh, can be cured with um, a global economy. All right, this is just one example. If we trade with the entire world, we'll see peace, we'll see better things happen. And so we have over the past 30 years, and you know what we've seen over the past 30 years as a result of that? Band-Aid! Our cities have been emptied of jobs. And we're left with inner cities, of ghettos of joblessness as a result. Listen, we, man, humanity, from now until the end of time, will continue trying to figure out what the problems are, and they'll try to put solutions in place, but they will never fully work. Do you know why? It's because we're doing it without God. The real problem is that we have not fully followed God, and the only so solution is to wholly follow God completely. So what's the answer? Is the answer for us to be like Caleb? Like I could say to you guys, all right, so be like Caleb this week. Go be like Caleb. Go have faith. Go follow after God fully. Is that the answer? Yes and no, all right? Yes in the sense that you have to fully follow after God, all right? You have to be faithful to God. Even when everyone else around you is doubting, you are to be faithful. Even when we don't see fruit for 45 years, you have to be faithful to God until the end. But listen, if that's what I left you with, if I said, okay, guys, let's go be a bunch of Caleb's this week, I would leave you with nothing more than the law. You see, Israel was told to follow after God. Israel was told to be like Caleb. But what we see in the story is of Israel is our own story. And that's this. The law was never enough. The law was never enough. The law actually only condemns us. You see, what, what, what happens is this. Caleb is this example of faithfulness, but the remainder of Israel turns their back and does not follow God and rebels once again. Guys, it gets so bad that by the end of the Old Testament, God's Spirit completely withdraws for 400 years. The law never worked. Me just telling you, go be like Caleb, it won't work. What we see in the story of Israel is our story. What we see here is that we don't even have what it takes So what is our answer? Guys, the, the Bible is the most realistic book in all of the world. It shows humanity for what we really are. The Bible shows humanity for what we really know humanity to be. And that's brokenness upon brokenness upon brokenness. And what the Bible says is the only answer the center of it all is our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what we find in Christ is this. Where humanity failed, where humanity failed at following after God when, every, when everyone else did not, Christ came 
and followed God completely, was completely faithful to the Father, even though the world around him knew him not, even though the world around him turned his, their backs and rebelled, even though his own 12 turned against him, Jesus was faithful completely. Where humanity fell, Jesus was faithful the entire time through temptations, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Where humanity fell, Jesus was faithful to the very bitter, excruciating end. And you know what happened on the cross? What happened on the cross is this. All of our failures, humanity's failures, the failures and the rebelliousness of Israel constantly turning their backs on God, the failures and rebelliousness of you constantly falling, constantly turning your backs on God that was placed onto Christ. And this great reversal happened in which you were given the righteousness, the goodness of Christ. And he absorbed the wrath of God that should have been yours. Every bit of it, every ounce of it, and there's nothing left for you. And he was buried. But listen, it doesn't end there. He rose from the dead, right? He rose from the dead, and this is what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I want to read to you some of Jesus' last words. He says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. In the same way that Caleb had a different spirit which allowed him to be faithful to God. Listen, we are given a different spirit. We no longer have our old spirit which led us into rebellion. But we now are given the very spirit of God. For those of you who are Christians, at the moment that you repent of your sins and you believe the gospel, the new spirit, the different spirit, the spirit of God which drove Christ's own faithfulness is implanted into your own heart. And with this spirit, you have power. The power to do what? Two things. Number one, you have power to finally be faithful. Listen, Christians, you can actually be faithful to God. You have the ability to be faithful to God that you never did. You have the ability to follow after the word of God, to trust the word of God amidst doubters, to trust the word of God for a long period of time, even when all you have is tragedy. You have the ability to be faithful. Secondly, you have the power to make followers of Christ, to make disciples. Why? Because you have the power of the gospel, the proclamation of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And you have the, that, that, that power there, which when proclaimed, listen, can actually change people and be a tool that God will use for his own spirit to come in and make yet another person who can fully follow God. The gospel changes people. The gospel has power to do what we cannot. What we are called to do is this. Listen, 
to just with boldness trusting God to proclaim that. And when we do not, when we say, God, what I'm seeing here is different than what you're telling me to do. This is impossible. The odds are stacked against me. Friends, we're slipping into the old flesh, our old understanding of God. No, God has given you the power of the gospel. And as we follow him completely and proclaim that, what we see are more people being transformed by Christ. Listen, I want to say this, I want to be very clear. If you care about our city, you have to care about proclaiming this gospel. If you care about poverty in our city, you have to care about proclaiming the gospel and seeing more people fall on their knees in repentance. If you care about, uh, to, to see less greed in our city, you have to care about the power of the gospel going forward. If you care about the humanity at all, our only answer is right here in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's taken the wrath of God for us, and he, instead of that, he's gifted us with his very own spirit, and we have the ability to follow after God. I believe that the gospel has the power to change this city. I believe the gospel has the power to change the hardest hearts, the biggest sinners, the gospel has the power to save. And we are called to remain faithful to that. Some of you may be suffering, going through a very difficult time. Listen, your call this morning is to remain faithful to the gospel. Some of you may be rejoicing. Guys, in your partying and in your rejoicing, your call in that moment is to remain faithful to God in obedience. Even if your life is filled with 45 years of wilderness wandering and dirt and blood and tears, you're called to remain faithful. And you are given the spirit of Jesus Christ, the very spirit of God, and you have the ability to do so. You are free to follow God fully. And through boldly proclaiming his death and resurrection, we will follow after God. And we will do this faithfully until God calls us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the fact that you have given us the ability, ability to be faithful to you, to follow after you completely. And God, I pray that you grab a hold of our desires this morning, grab a hold of our ambitions, grab a hold of our minds and our hearts, and redirect them. May, may we desire nothing more than to just simply follow you and trust your word. God, may we follow you in, in making more disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you use this gospel, you use this transformation of souls to bring about change in our hearts, starting here, and God, we will be faithful in this city, believing that you can also change a multitude. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.